0: The
1: Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized
0: education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship.
1: For more information, visit ScotiabankWomenInitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women building businesses supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada from funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies. On this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. The Startup Women Advocacy Network, SWAN, is a curated group of 11 women-identifying, early-stage entrepreneurs who advocate and champion the needs of women entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast. Kibby is a multilingual one-stop shop app that makes it easy for local businesses to connect with active job seekers, especially eligible, ready-to-work newcomers. Inspired by Kibbutz, a gathering of people who live by sharing resources, upholding equality, and working hard for their local communities, Kibbe began as a closely knit group of Canadians with a goal to make the job market more accessible and inclusive. Kibbe's founder, Hong Fook Nguyen, migrated to Canada in 2020, created the app with a team of fellow immigrants, hoping to be part of the solution. We are so proud to have her as the Alberta Swan representative. To learn more, visit mykibbe.com. That's K-I-B-B-I dot com. To learn more about Swan and the amazing work of these women founders, head to www.startupcan.ca slash startup-women-advocacy-network-2023. Have you ever Googled the word entrepreneur? What kind of images show up? What kind of folks do you see represented and associated with the word entrepreneur? More often than not, it isn't women. And I don't know about you, but I think this drastically needs to change. We've all heard the stereotypes and the harmful language that can be associated with women founders and won't be giving that any airtime today. What we will dive into today in this episode is the state of women entrepreneurs in Canada based on facts and data, the disruption, the innovation, and the success that women entrepreneurs are spearheading today. Dr. Wendy Kukie is the founder and academic director of the Diversity Institute and the academic director of the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, WEC. Wendy's leadership and research within WEC highlights the importance of rethinking how we assess and understand the experience of women entrepreneurs and the impact they continually make in Canada and beyond
0: part of what precipitated that that whole process was uh, did a google image search on entrepreneur and it was all men Um, i would go into rooms and i would say name three entrepreneurs and it was always some combination of steve jobs mark zuckerberg i mean now you hear more about elon musk and so on
1: we are also joined by vivian Liu, founder of may making auto easy. May is the first ever unbiased and guided car shopping experience built for women by women. May is designed to empower car shoppers with the tools and information to make smart and confident car buying decisions fast.
2: A lot of people don't know that the crash test dummy that they use to test cars in in accidents are all familiar with those. It was invented in 1949, and they made them in two sizes. There was a smaller dummy and a larger dummy. The smaller one was the size of a child, essentially. Uh, And they never built one in the shape of a woman. Now you can imagine, women are different shapes and sizes. The first women-shaped crash test dummy was built last year.
1: I'm so excited to be joined with Wendy and Vivian for this very important conversation. Welcome to the show, Wendy and Vivian. Hi Kayla, thanks for having me.
0: Great to be here.
1: I'm super excited about this episode on entrepreneurship, women's entrepreneurship in 2023. We're gonna cover a lot of ground in this episode. Uh, But to give some context and start with some background and intros, Wendy, I wanna really begin with your career journey. Uh, Take us back to when you started working in this space how your roles have changed and grown, um, and what you dedicate most of your time to now. What
0: a great question. So um, I've been working um, on entrepreneurship since before everybody on this call was born uh, because I started my <laughs> own business, uh, I won't even say in what year, and worked as have worked with as a consultant on and off. I've also started a number of uh, nonprofits and I've chaired boards on um, some tech startups and so on. So from from a personal perspective, I've had experience as an entrepreneur. I guess I started really doubling down on entrepreneurship as an area of focus for my research and my work at the university formerly known as Ryerson, now Toronto Metropolitan University. when I was a professor in the, uh, in the School of Information Technology Management, because of course we, we had a big emphasis on women in tech, and it wasn't just women in large businesses, it was also women in tech startups. And the university had a particular focus on uh, technology startups, and of course the world famous digital media zone. And when I became the vice president of research and innovation, it became particularly clear that women were not especially well represented um, in those spaces. And so we worked to think about how did the definitions of entrepreneurship and the association between entrepreneurship and technology discourage women from identifying as entrepreneurs. And what we found, for example, is if you had um, an event and you called for aspiring entrepreneurs, you'd get mostly men mostly from the business school or the engineering school. If you called a meeting and said, we're going to talk about change making, we're gonna talk about social entrepreneurship, you would you would get primarily women and people out of different disciplines. And so understanding that from a very uh, practical experience really shaped the way I started to think about entrepreneurship and then after I finished as the Vice President of Research and Innovation. Um, Instead of returning as a Professor of Information Technology Management, I moved into the School of Entrepreneurship and Strategy. And then of course, we were successful in obtaining a number of grants to develop different programs and the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub and so on. So the rest is history, but really it came from personal experience and observation, and the research came later.
1: And Vivian, how did you enter the auto industry? And and take us back to the moments that really signaled to you that you needed to make your own path and begin to change and really be a change maker in this space for women.
2: I really didn't expect to be in the auto industry, uh, especially for as long as I have. I it all started Mm. in university. I did a marketing competition in my fourth year, and it was called Canada's Next Top Ad Exec, and it was a competition between all the universities across Canada. And if you reached their top twenty-five in the country, you could apply for certain jobs. And the the yeah yeah yeah, I think they're still operating, but this was uh, it was sponsored mainly sponsored by Chevrolet and i got that position so i started my career at general motors as a district sales manager in Kelowna, bc and i spent the next seven years uh, with gm moving from different uh, regions of the country managing more and more dealerships uh, with more responsibilities of course and that's how i you know that's been my career i loved it i didn't expect it to happen i've built a path for myself of the things that i'm interested in this industry and i've Eventually got to a point where I realized there are a lot of gaps in the experience, especially when it comes to women and their experiences buying a car, even selling a car. Um, and I decided to um, I re- decided to make a, a dec- I made that decision to really build something f- dedicated for women because I don't see it in the industry. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half. Amazing. We'll be doing a
1: deep dive getting to know May and all the great work that you've been doing. And I've had the luxury of being able to see you on uh, the Startup Canada tour stage in Vancouver and hearing you as our BC Swan rep. So I'm excited to get to know you even better here, Vivian. That's amazing. So, Wendy, uh, the Women's Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, WEC, we'll, we'll use short form in this episode, does a tremendous amount of research on the women's entrepreneurship landscape. You've mentioned this already as well, and we pointed to a couple of reports. Most recently, you released the State of Women's Entrepreneurship in Canada, the 2023 uh, report. Why is it important to do research like this? And and can you take us into the process of gathering these insights? Maybe anything interesting that you've seen
0: change over the last couple of years. Sure, it's it's such an important question because you know in my mind um, research is only valuable if it if the insights drive action. So I'm very interested. A lot of academics will focus their research on insights that they can publish and and that basically stay in the academic domain. Um, perhaps I'm not a very good academic, but I've always been much more interested in research that helps us um, create opportunities, erode barriers, and so on. And my observation, and again, a lot of it comes from personal experience. And then once I I see that there might be a problem or a question, then I dig in and and try to explore it in more detail. But as I said, some of the insights really came from my own experience, both as an entrepreneur, but also in overseeing a very large uh, research and innovation um, uh, operation at the university and the digital media zones. Talking to lots of entrepreneurs, whether they were women or Black entrepreneurs or others, and hearing the stories about the experiences in terms of challenges getting access to capital or going into meetings where you know, the investors assumed that the guy in the room was leading the company or being asked inappropriate questions or being hit up when they went to trade shows and so on and so on and so on. And because most of my career was in the tech sector, I, I had particular insights into that. And so one of the things we when we especially with WAC, we were charged to do was really to look into the evidence that um, supported the experiences that had been reported by many women because often women, you know, you, you second guess yourself. You wonder, is it just me? Am I just oversensitive? Did I dress wrong? You know, did I do something? And, and, and I think the research in some ways is incredibly valuable in helping uh, women who feel like they've been gaslit their entire lives by showing that these are actually structural issues that we actually know for a fact that from research, that uh, VCs ask men different questions, that men VCs miss opportunities. You know, my favorite example is Sheertex that was pitched, you know, pantyhose that doesn't run. and over and over and over the, the men who were looking for investments overlooked it because they did not understand what that market opportunity was. So really what we started with was actually collecting research that had been done around the world by lots and lots of different people and synthesized that. We went in and we dug in on government data, so Stats Canada data, I said data, any kind of data sources where we could start to look at differences between men and women. Um, and even if you're looking at women, women who were in food versus women who were in tech, women who were Black, women who were Indigenous, women who identified as having disabilities, and so on. So a lot of the work we did was actually what we would call synthesizing existing research or reanalyzing data that had already been collected. We formed partnerships, you know, so when BMO, for instance, ran its competitions, it would have 1200 women apply. We got access to that data and were able to look at the patterns when, uh, the black, um, business entrepreneurship, um, uh, association organized uh, the Rise Up competition and 700 Black women applied, they gave us the data and we were able to analyze what were the experiences of those those particular women. So we did reanalysis of data. And then, of course, we had some of our own projects. So some of the things I'm most interested in are what works, you know, there's a lot of focus on training, you know, we need financial literacy, we need to do a business plan. And of course, those things are true. But what actually makes a difference? If, you know, I've forgotten everything I knew about finance from my MBA. And the reality is, you know, if you're a woman entrepreneur, yes, you have to be able to read financial statements, you have to be able to do sales projections, you have to understand the different sources of of financing and the pros and cons and so on. But, you know, you don't have to be able to do a full set of books, you can hire someone to do that. So really trying to understand when we talk about financial literacy, what do we really mean? And what is really needed? And and so, you know, projects like capital skills, where we didn't set targets around uh, you know, how many people attended or whether they loved it or hated it. The only criteria we were looking at in that particular program was did people get money? What is the impact? So, really focusing research on understanding the impact. We have all these accelerators and incubators. What do they really do? What does it really mean? Um, You know, one of the projects my PhD student did, for example, was look at an incubator that was focused on musicians, who are of course entrepreneurs, cultural uh, products are really important and often excluded. And she was able to show very clearly huge differences in the success measured in Spotify of people who had gone through the incubator and people who had not, right? That's the kind of research that actually can shape policy. Understanding that most women don't incorporate 90% of women don't incorporate. So if you say a woman an entrepreneur is someone who owns a small medium enterprise, you're missing 90% of the women entrepreneurs in Canada. So it was that it was that kind of thing. It was it was looking at existing data and then doing some very targeted projects to try to figure out what works for whom that could then inform government policy and practice to move things forward. Sorry, long answer, I'm a professor, you know?
1: It's a great answer, Wendy. And, and I think it's so important in so many conversations we have around women's entre- entrepreneurship, not to just always be focusing on you know what are the barriers that you have faced as being a woman entrepreneur and narrowing these conversations, always focusing on the negative um, and shifting it and saying, you know, what's really working? When we look at the intersectionality of identity, what's working? When we look at all these different groups, um, how can we learn and use the podium of these great organizations that have excellent data to then create more movement in a direction that's actually showing impact? Like that's such a productive vehicle to really drive change. Well, and Kayla,
0: if I can give you just one other example, we did a project with Corrales, formerly CEO, to look at women's contribution to net zero. So, of course, we want to know what their experiences were and barriers and so on. But really what we're trying to do is develop a model that shows that to get to net zero, we need more than green tech. We need people who are revolutionizing packaging. We need people who are developing, you know, disposable clothing and and eco-friendly products. And so, again, trying to sort of focus on what women are doing and doing really well, as opposed to treating them as less than men, which tends to be the way this often gets framed.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And Vivian, not to jump into a, you know, what were the pitfalls that you experienced as a women identifying founder? But was this something because you were navigating already such a male dominated field and you were working to support customers that were already experiencing a lot of bias? Um, how did, what was your mind going through when you're starting, um, you know, to think about May and, and the type of work that this organization was trying to accomplish for women? What was going through your mind in that inception?
2: Yeah, you know, firstly, I think it's really interesting the things that Wendy's bringing up in, in terms of like the numbers and the stats and the studies that have done, because as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman uh, young in her career, You know, these are the things that we read and that we learn online. And it is very daunting to see these numbers. And a lot of times we are reading very negative things. uh, But it's really important that we have all of these communities that can help us through and understand that the opportunity is there and that we can really build something from our perspective. And I think that's what I really try to focus on. Because when I stepped into the auto industry, I was, I just turned 21. Uh, I moved into rural communities and I was going around telling you know, men who have been in the industry longer than I've been alive, how to, you know, uh, build better business processes, how to make more money. And from their perspective, I am this young, ethnic female coming into the auto industry that knows nothing about their business. In a lot of ways, that was true, but that does not mean that I don't offer a perspective that would be beneficial to their business. And that was something that I learned really quickly in terms of understanding how they how they tick and why they are the the way that they are, you know, the auto industry hasn't changed very much in the last century and neither has its experience. Uh, And a lot of times that's really hard for them to understand because that's the world that they live in. They don't do anything other than that. So, um, you know, going into that, I really saw an opportunity there And it was one that I think a lot of people in the auto industry know, you know, women purchase the majority of all cars. We influence the majority of car purchasing decisions. And yet there's numbers and there's this feeling that women have uh, when it comes to thinking about buying a car, and a lot of women, they said that, you know, I can't go to a dealership without my father, or my boyfriend, or my husband, or my partner. And you know what, I, like, it's, it's a frame of mind, and it's truly not the case. You are more than capable. You know, the women that we work with are CEOs of their own company. They're very capable, very independent. But when it comes to purchasing a car, they don't feel like they can do that alone, and I found that that comes down to just a matter of preparation in this gap of knowledge, where once you, uh, through the help of May, you are in a much better position where you feel confident, you realize that you have everything you need. It's just a matter of preparation. Um yeah. And I remember being in the industry as a business professional, starting at that age. You know, there's not a lot of women in the auto industry, especially uh, when it comes to sales. If you walk into any dealership, and it's still very much the case. And you know, I remember things coming up that I wasn't expecting to. Like my age was obviously a factor. The fact that I was a female was definitely a factor. My background was definitely a factor. And those things came up in conversation, and it just took me time uh, to one expect that. In this industry and not take one i i I don't take offense to it i take that as an opportunity for me to then showcase what i have to offer and then change their perspective about the type of person that i am and i think that's why i have been successful in this industry and in terms of like, did I hesitate to become an entrepreneur? Absolutely. You know, the first things you learn is the, the number of women entrepreneurs, the number of women founded VCs and how many of those, uh, those startups are funded. Yeah, that's a very scary environment to be in. But I think because of what I've learned and the the confidence that i've built in myself in my knowledge and my capability that also comes from the community that i have surrounding me that's what ultimately brought me into it and organizations like swan you know as uh, the startup canada even like the forum these are organizations that really helped me get started
1: hmm. Amazing, David. Those are great shout-outs. We love the forum here as well. Another great organization. And one of the insights that was really shared in in a lot of the reports through WEC um, is that so many women are less likely to be in technology. I don't think that's surprising to many of us Um, and and often in these underrepresented industries. And you really are disrupting such a male-dominated space. Um, As you look to the future of May, is this something that you're thinking more and more about? Is this um, something that, you know, you've recognized, you know what you're coming into? How do do you feel about the future of being in this type of space and investment and, and the growth of your organization?
2: I think from my perspective, you know, being an entrepreneur starting in 2022, 2023, I see all of the organizations, the the angels, the the women who have led this uh, path for me, you know, I think about like Whitney Wolf Heard, Tara Bosch from Vancouver. You know, these are entrepreneurs that have done so much. And so from my perspective, being an entrepreneur now, I see so much opportunity, I see so much support, and I can recognize that, you know, five years ago, this wasn't necessarily always the case. Um, So I can only imagine what it would have been like prior to that. So I think one of the things that I recognized in the tech industry as a non-technical founder trying to build tech is I don't know where the women are. You know, I know there are women devs out there. I know that there's a lot of women in tech, but it is such a small fraction of that entire industry. And I really recognize that when I try to go out there and find talent. So it's one of the things that I'm really interested in is finding people that I can support uh, to recognize that they can build their careers in tech more than where they think that they currently are. You know, when I put out job postings out there, I get a wealth of men coming to apply. And that's fantastic. They're all, you know, very talented, but it always makes me wonder where the women and when I find one, I absolutely cherish them. (laughs) Um, And I really want to support them in what I'm trying to build because what I'm trying to build, there is this empathy that I require uh, in this perspective that I'm looking to bring in the industry. And that's what I want to continue to do because I have not seen that. Um, in my industry
1: that's a great a great perspective Vivian and shout out to Tara Bosch I was literally just eating smart sweets <laughs> I still have the taste of smart sweets in my mouth Tara did an incredible keynote uh, on our Vancouver tour stop and uh, our team has been devouring smart sweets ever since so great shout out to an unbelievable founder um, out of BC uh, I love that you've mentioned Vivian you know this this being able to see different, um, types of, of women building different types of businesses and being able to be inspired, encouraged by this path that they've, they've built. And Wendy, the whack see it, be it, entire campaign and um, sort of database of all these different stories is really trying to create that for every single woman identifying founder across the country. Um, you released an entire report on this notion with so many insights that reveal you know, various stereotypes about women entrepreneurs, but more importantly, I think, just showing the unbelievable diversity of types of businesses that women are building across the country. It's unbelievable. Um, what what would you say have been some of the learnings from seeing all of these founders in this group? Any stereotypes that, that have come up through that? compiling and and that research and um what are the conversations that you're now having around what
0: you've uncovered through that exercise it's really such a good question and and you know um again part of what precipitated that that whole process was I did a google image search on entrepreneur mm. and it was all, all men um, i would <laughs> go into rooms and i would say name three entrepreneurs and it was always some combination of Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, now you hear more about Elon Musk and so on. I looked at the okay, textbooks. Awesome. Like I teach entrepreneurship. The textbooks that we were using had only men in tech. Like it was it was unbelievable the extent to which the stereotypes had sort of permeated everyone's consciousness. And so... As I explained, one of the things we did initially was really to start to look at different kinds of entrepreneurs. So yes, of course, there were women in tech and we, we gave shout outs to, um, to lots of them and, and really did a, a, a search to identify women who were leading in ICT startups and, and green tech and so on. But we also looked at women who were leading impactful social ventures. We looked at women who were leading in culture, in food, in all of these other sectors that may not always be as high growth, but certainly are are sustainable. And what we found, like even my own assumptions, I did the Harvard implicit bias test. I've been working on women in technology for 30 years. And I tend to associate men with tech, women with arts and social sciences. So if that's my instinctive reaction, you can understand what the what the problem was. And then we really started collecting the stories and, and just trying to change people's perspectives. I mean, Celine Dion is one of the richest women in Canada. She's worth about $800 million. People don't think of performers as entrepreneurs. Maybe you've heard of Oprah Winfrey, you know, it's, 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 so, so that's that's one whole area. Even getting as people to rethink tech, and it's it's Vivian's comments are really funny because you know with artificial intelligence and low code, no code, anybody can start to build applications with minimal coding and 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 um, and programming experience. And so we started to identify women who led companies like Sampler, who weren't themselves technology leaders, but knew where to get talent. And, it, you know, we did a, a search on women CEOs of large tech companies in the States. And what we were able to see is that only about half of them came up through technology. The other half, like Vivian, came up through marketing or regulatory or or other other areas. And one of my favorite examples, and I actually argued this with the digital supercluster, you know, the government's pouring money into the tech sector and they made in my view, the mistake of thinking that we're going to drive tech innovation by investing only in science, technology, engineering, and math, and only investing in tech companies. You can invest all you want in tech companies, but if nobody uses it, you get no innovation. And so the example that I love to put forward is, you know, Kylie Jenner. Pretty sure she doesn't oh. have an engineering degree, right? <laughs> Billionaire, <laughs> at, the <age laughs> Billionaire yeah. at the age of 20. Billionaire at the age of 20 using yeah. using Shopify, a Canadian tech platform, she didn't need to build it. She just needed to have a very famous name and profile and know how to use it. So even in the tech sector, even in the tech sector, understanding that all tech entrepreneurs are not engineers or computer scientists becomes really important. And you know, just sharing those stories and sharing those stories and challenging assumptions is its a big job, but fundamentally, That's the job that we really have to focus on because it shapes opportunities for women and it shapes the aspirations of young people like Vivian and and others who don't see themselves um, in the space.
1: And represented. And when you look at the investments, um, or I guess the the policies generally that are intending to support women entr- entrepreneurs, I love that you've brought this up specifically, in the vehicles to drive innovation and drive, you know, um, more investment into tech, how are you seeing stereotypes or even biases impact these policies or these programs from either a government perspective or sort of overall in Canada. We obviously have this great women's entrepreneurship strategy. There's been incredible investments in women-led organizations that do such a variety of programs. Um, How are you seeing that unfolding now in 2023 versus maybe some of the lessons that were learned when West first started a couple of years ago?
0: Well, it does, you know, the good news is it does look like, could be wrong, because the data is still uh, uh, challenging to work with. You don't have consistent consistent sources, but it does look like the percentage of bu- businesses owned, so this excludes self-employed women, the percentage of businesses owned by women has actually moved up from around 15% to over 18 Now, You know, I I say that with many caveats, but um, so that tells us something is is shifting. What I love about the Women Entrepreneurship Strategy, quite honestly, is not that they set aside a pot of money for women. Of course, that's good. Of course, we want more. We especially want more investments in microfinancing and microgrants because most businesses start with less than $5,000. It's hard to get. And often the interest rates that are being charged are usurious, like they're, you know, 10% is, it's, it makes no sense to me. So, but the funds, the funds are of course important, but to me, what is the most important part is building the ecosystem. And when I talk about building the ecosystem, I am not talking just about organizations like Coralis or the forum or others that specifically target women. I'm talking about creating more inclusion in incubators, in accelerators, in financial institutions, and quite frankly, holding companies accountable. So you have all kinds of companies that claim to be committed to diversity, sign the Black North Pledge, sign the 50-30 Challenge, uh, sign the 30% Club, which is all great. But my question is always, are you putting your money where your mouth is? And I think that supplier diversity programs are transformational because it isn't relying on the government to hand out funds or to to invest in in more um, loans or grants or, or VC investments. It's basically shifting systemic issues. And, you know, as much as I think being able to get investments Being able to get loans is important. The most important thing is getting customers and that's where procurement becomes critical and the government to its credit is really moving forward and they have billions of dollars they spend on products and services. Make sure women get 20% of it. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's I, I love that positioning, Wendy. And, and that's come up very often, I think, in the last couple of months in many conversations we've been having at Startup Canada overall um, around helping to convene the existing you know traditional women's-focused programs and all these support organizations that exist. Uh, but supplier diversity actually being the b- biggest vehicle to make the biggest amount of change, probably the most rapidly as well. If we can bring in more customers, bring in that um, additional revenue, grow these companies, um, that, that ultimately helps each founder and then that creates more momentum. To do more of that um, across across the entire ecosystem. So I love that comment. Vivian, you're one of our Startup Canada SWAN members, the Startup Women Advocacy Network members, and you are representing BC. Um, So for those that are not familiar with SWAN, uh, you will have heard a couple of different advertisements that we've got across both of our podcasts profiling our SWAN members. It's essentially one woman identifying early stage founder from every province and territory across the country that we identify um, and hear their recommendations on how we can make Canada a better place for them to grow their business, make connections, tell their stories, and really use Startup Canada as a platform to to showcase their work. Very similar to the see it be it um, kind of energy that WEC has as well. Um, so Vivian, when, when you think about connecting with other women entrepreneurs, and you've already mentioned a couple of programs that you found really helpful, um, why does this connection matter so much to you in this part of your business? Are you looking more for the mentorship? Are you looking more for peers that you might be able to learn from that are in a similar situation? Um, and do you think that there's actually enough advocate, advocacy and support for this um, sort of foundational early stage women identifying founder talk to us about your perspectives on that absolutely
2: firstly i want to say thank you um it's an honor to be part of this program i uh, i'm really thankful to have been introduced to the organization firstly and it wasn't one that i had been aware of when i first started my entrepreneurship journey and it's it's not going to be the last one that i discover so it's always great to to be part of something and everybody always says um you know in terms of the advice they give you as a founder is you're going to be lonely You know, being a founder is a lonely journey. And there, in many cases, it is very true, but it is the people in the organizations that you surround yourself in. And I I have a wealth of them. I feel very fortunate. And that comes from a lot of putting yourself out there and you can't if you if this is your first time building a company there's so much you don't know you know everything everything i know nothing is how i feel uh despite being you know in the industry and i have that background and knowledge but it comes from you know everything i learned where i am in this point it comes from the people that i've talked to the mentors that i've built the advisors who have given me their time um You know their precious time on the weekends, even just to have those conversations with me. I'm a big, very big believer in that you can learn something from anybody, and it it is those times where I feel like I don't know what to do with my next step. I'm feeling uncertain about my business model. I'm feeling some imposter syndrome because another company is moving faster than me. You know, it is the the random conversations that I have with organizations, with other founders, other female founders, where you get these little golden nuggets that give you. the hope and motivation to continue forward. And those are things that are really crucial, I think, in terms of my journey. And I can confidently say that's the case for a lot of other people and a lot of women.
1: Yeah. And on the advocacy side, is there something that's still missing? What do you think is still something that, um, as a call to action to you know listeners, to government, to those that are trying to support women founders, what's still missing?
2: Yeah, I mean the advocacy is so important because in terms, if for me it feels like representation. If for me, it feels like I have people that I can go to to ask questions. People have done it before, whether they've succeeded or failed. Those are things that I really learn from. And having the people that I can advocate for what I'm looking to do in the industry that I'm in, perhaps policies that I need to face down the line that I'm currently not aware of. You know, to learn from other people's learnings and mistakes and opportunities. That's that's so important. And there, it comes from people willing to have those conversations with you and then the, the different pathways for us to connect with one another. Because to do all of that on my own, it, it seems near impossible, but to be part of organizations, it feels like I have direction.
1: I love that, Vivian. And uh, Wendy, when you think of other leaders that are running important programs, different support organizations across the ecosystem that may not be dedicating um you know resources or focusing specifically on women founders what would be your call to action to them to ensure that they are uh, creating spaces that are advancing women's entrepreneurship and creating these spaces where women can feel seen they can feel supported um and that that becomes a more inclusive space no matter what type of program is being offered
0: yeah i think you know from my point of view um making we really need to work at uh, eliminating the duplication and overlap you know not everybody needs to develop a an entrepreneurship 101 program frankly and we also need to share more about what works and what does not as opposed to being quite honestly i find a lot of parochialism in the in the space right now uh, one of the most important things for me and this really addresses some of the needs that vivian Um, spoke about is making sure there's interconnections. So if somebody comes in the door at the DMZ or at Startup Canada or at the forum and is not a suitable candidate for whatever the programming is that's there, send them where they should go. Like we need to have more collaboration and more people who are cross-referring. If somebody has gone through the Rise Up um, training program for Black women that the Black Business Professional Association offers, and they've gone through the competition and they've done, you know, they've done their basic work. Who can we hand them off to, to go to the next stage, and making sure that we almost have a map of here's the stage one, the stage two, the stage three. So that's one of my fantasy dreams. Um, that I would really like to see us accomplish over the next couple of years. I think the second thing is making sure that we don't just focus on the organizations with women at the beginning of of the name. And it reminds me, the example I, I always use is we used to talk about lady doctors, right? We used to talk about lady doctors. And the reason we talked about lady doctors was because it was assumed doctors were men right? And if you were a woman and you were a doctor, you were exceptional. So you were a lady doctor. And I feel a bit the same way about women entrepreneurs. Um, It can become a ghetto, right? Because I know a lot of women in tech, they just want to be at the table. They don't necessarily want to be channeled off into a women's organization They want support in the mainstream organizations that are going to help them. So I think that's the second thing. It's not to say that support for women focused programs is not absolutely fundamental and critical because we know women often want different kinds of support. And as Vivian said, um, especially during the pandemic, those personal connections, I mean, we launched a Ask Give platform just to connect people better. So that is critically important. But we really need to hold the bank's feet to the fire. We really need to call them out when they are are, um, women washing programs. You know, we've seen a lot of them do it, right? Oh, we're investing a billion dollars in women entrepreneurs. All they've done is gone and looked at the current business they have and who has credit cards, put it together, and actually, it's same old, same old. They're not doing anything new, so we have to be prepared to call people out on that stuff. And I think the final thing um, that is super, super important is is creating those spaces. Um, you know, I, our ask, give platforms not perfect, but it's it's conceptually what we need, which is I've got something, I'm prepared to help you with. Uh, navigating the CDAP program and getting access to um, either $2,500 or $100,000 to support digital adoption. Right? That's where you can go and you can find out anything, regardless of who's got the program, who's got the expertise. I want to export potatoes to Poland. Who knows things that will be helpful to me. And I think, you know, technology has given us an opportunity to to rationalize some of that because I I used to say that it's like it used to be like old style dating you know an entrepreneur will go to this competition on Monday and a different event on Tuesday and a different event on Wednesday and maybe they'll find their perfect match but maybe they won't and there are ways that we can do a much much better job of helping people who have needs connect with people who have resources, expertise, and so on. And, you know, a good place to start is trying to reduce the fragmentation around access to information on government programs, funding, and training would be a great place to start.
1: Dang it, Wendy. Like, the, I I could not agree anymore with all of these different comments. And this this. Efficiency focus, we've, we've been adding, you know, a lot of extra and more and and often a lot of noise into what is a, now seemingly to be a very complicated ecosystem that as an early stage founder, to Vivian's point, like you'd be spending all of your time just researching your way into trying to find, you know, resources and what's actually the right organization for me or is this the right stage that I talk to this person? I love this idea as a country of having this, you know, no wrong door kind of approach. But we need some type of system that helps founders actually navigate and enter from the right positioning, and then be guided to the next right step based on what their aspirations are as well. Right? We can't make assumptions around how everyone wants to grow their businesses, but we shouldn't make assumptions to think that women entrepreneurs may not want to grow their businesses in you know very high growth ways. Uh, but I love this idea of taking a look at the Canadian ecosystem and trying to be much more. Effective efficient with the resources and having that better serve the founders that are navigating so much complexity. Um, I loved your second note as well, Wendy, in, in challenging um, you know, labeling and, and the language that we use and potentially even the way that we celebrate women entrepreneurs. I've been reflecting on this and I would love both of your thoughts on this if you have, have something to think about here. Um, even on awards and recognitions, there are often so many women entrepreneur You know awards or women CEOs that we recognize, or you know best women leader, Um, and I've even found myself sort of in this this flurry of women's specific recognitions. And looking at so much of that in the last couple of years, has that moved things forward? Yes, it's given these great examples of incredible women in leadership, but. I'm a CEO, I'm I'm not just a women CEO. Um, any thoughts? I'm more just out of my own personal curiosity. I know this isn't in the script, oh, if, but what if, are your
0: thoughts on this it's, labeling? <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. I think we need both. Is it? And yeah. you know, it's the same yeah. thing with, you know, indigenous awards, the Harry Jerome awards. Mm-hmm. Those are super important. We have to celebrate role models who have broken through glass ceilings, concrete walls, whatever. But we also, you know, I I follow up and I I'm, I'm very annoying but if I see for example a chamber of commerce with business awards without what would look like reasonable representation of women I'll call it out in the same way if I see you know one of the big innovation centers running a running a workshop on quantum computing with no women at the table so I think that I think your point is really well taken. And part of it is women do not always self-promote, partly because they have other challenges and partly, as Vivian said, you know, when you're the only one, you don't know if you're actually as good as you could be, think you might be and so on. And so we also need a a more concerted, intentional effort to say, okay, who are we going to nominate for? you know, the the Chamber of Commerce Business Awards. Who are we going to nominate for CEO of the year? Who are we going to nominate for the ROB, you know, best, fastest growing businesses? Like really pick out those mainstream Mm -hmm. awards and make sure women are at the table, along with other Mm -hmm. um, equity deserving groups. But we have to nominate people, people. you know, you're not going to, we can't assume that this will happen naturally, because we know that, you know, a man has 50% of the qualifications, they'll put their name forward, women have 105%, and they have to be tapped on the shoulder and told you can do this. And that's the reality, research shows it to be true. Yeah.
1: Devine, what do you think about it?
2: i'm recognizing my own behavior when i apply for things when i find communities Mm. when it's you know it's female founder focused, i have this immediate excitement where i feel like i'm being recognized so i can see both Mm. sides of it and i definitely have applied for my fair share of everything that's female founder focused um and i'll give it credit because it has given me quite a lot of exposure and to the point where we have, you know, I, I've lot of met a lot of women professionals, you're just professionals. I've met a lot of business professionals who have reached out to me that are women because they've reached that point in their career where now they want to focus on something that they believe in. And now they want to work with a female led business. And I think that's also very powerful because now they are familiar with who I am because of the exposure that I've gotten. In the last week, I've had two people who've said that they want to work with me because they love our mission. And I don't necessarily know if you know they would have found us if it wasn't for all of the exposure that May has gotten for the last year. And a lot of that, I do have to thank for the organizations that did want to put female founders first.
1: So maybe it's this and (laughs) it's it's both. We can have better representation in in the general awards. And Wendy, it made me also think about the nomination process when you just mentioned that earlier as well. And Vivian, you were touching on it. I've been a judge in many of these competitions. And when I look at the women's entrepreneurship awards, let's say there would be 300 applications from women. And then in the you know Entrepreneur of the Year award there may be five. It's similar criteria. You know there's nothing else that's different in those types of things, which makes me also reflect on okay women apply for the Entrepreneur of the Year award one and two. I love this you know movement to be supporting each other and nominating each other and, and putting each other on these podiums. But it does take effort. It does take energy. Uh, so maybe it's it's women's awards plus fabulous excellent representation to deserving
0: leaders that happen to be women as well. 100 percent 100 percent and it's in the same way that we have to we have to make space for women where they want to be you know
1: we mm. do need
0: more women in engineering and computer science and I've spent more than 30 years on that but we also need to recognize you don't need a degree in computer science or engineering to make a very significant contribution to the tech sector and right? you may know Laura McGee who runs uh who runs um, Diversio, right? She's a, a perfect example. She just knew how to hire well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's a huge part of the battle. And uh, I mean, talent is not an easy thing to come by these days, but there's definitely very creative ways to build businesses. And, and we know that women are incredibly creative <laughs> in coming up with, with some of these outlines as well. Uh, I do want to talk about innovation because when you did bring this up a little bit earlier, and I love talking about you know, even just the way the world is operating moving forward and, and how we're thinking so differently with AI and with all these shifts and, and obviously massive global um, challenges that are in front of us. What role do you think that innovation is playing in the success of women entrepreneurs? I think we've identified some really unique opportunities and lenses that are being brought in, but is there anything in the research specifically that's really supporting the importance of innovation and, and talking about women entrepreneurs in the innovation agenda? Sure,
0: so I'll, I'll give you kind of a pointy-headed academic um, answer first. A lot of people, and including many government agencies, Confuse innovation with invention. Okay. Mm. Oh, that's good. A technology mm-hmm. is an invention until people use it. Innovation is about doing things differently. A vaccination is an invention. Inoculation is the innovation. Once you have that vaccination in people's arms, that's when you've actually produced change. And the same is true when we look at green tech. I was, uh, when I started as Vice President of Research and Innovation, so it's more than 10 years ago, um, there were over 400 clean water companies in the province of Ontario, because I was going on trade missions to uh, Africa, China, various places with these water companies. We still had clean water advisories in 30% of Indigenous communities right? The technology was there. It was the pathway to adoption. And so, when, you know, I do love the, um, the concept of the CDAP program, the Canadian Digital Adoption Program, because it recognizes that having technology is not the same as, as driving change. As soon as you have that broader definition of, of technology to include adoption, to include use, you make all kinds of space for women. Because they are more likely to be in it in different disciplines, they are more likely, for example, to be working on uh, reducing packaging or green products or or uh, shaping consumer behavior, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, than maybe actually building building the technology. So that's that's one piece I think that is really important. The other piece that's really important is looking at the research. Everyone assumes tech is is synonymous with innovation. And the latest research actually shows that that you know, women are holding their own compared to men in terms of technological innovation. But where they're they're blowing the men's socks off is when it comes to market innovation or product and service innovation, right? And that's that's data from the federal government. So when we 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 fall into this very narrow notion of innovation, we exclude women. When we actually look at the data and look at the research and look at what innovation is really about, um, suddenly you see many more women and you see opportunities going forward because we are not gonna hit the net zero targets unless we change organizational behavior and human behavior. And that's a much more complex problem then developing some new technology that, um, you know, produces more energy efficiency. It's it's moving from all of that stuff to driving change. And women are way better, in in my estimation, of figuring out how to drive those changes. But they're often not at the table when these um, important issues are discussed.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Vivian where where does that land with you and your journey of entrepreneurship how has you know the idea of innovation been propelling may forward really from a competitive standpoint what, how do you conceptualize innovation even maybe we'll start there
2: yeah, it's one of those things where i get a lot of people asking me about why are you doing this for women why women you know what do women have like do we- i've gotten a lot of really bad social media comments about this topic. And oh, yeah, yeah well, to no <laughs> surprise. And I, I see it for what it is. And I think mm-hmm. uh recognizing what I know about the industry and what I've seen in my experience working with these amazing women uh, in the, this, the decisions that they're making for themselves and their family, you know, it is a different way that we think about the purchasing experience, the different things that we are thinking about for ourselves, our lifestyle, the The things that we do for our kids—if if if my mom has to come join us because she's taking care of the kids, whatever it may be—these are things that I don't think the auto industry is really thinking about. And a really great example of this that I was that I just thought of as when he was talking is uh, a lot of people don't know that the crash test dummy that they use to test cars in the in accidents are all familiar with those. It was invented in 1949. And they made them in two sizes. There was a smaller dummy and a larger dummy. The smaller one was the size of a child, essentially. Uh, and they never built one in the shape of a woman. Now you can imagine women are different shapes and sizes. Um, in the first women-shaped uh, crash test dummy was built last year. Wow. So that is almost 75 years of of research that it was not done advocating for women's safety driving cars when we are, you know, we are the ones who also need to be protected. And these are the things that they were not thinking about. So I think about things like that, like imagine if you're pregnant, there has not been a crash test dummy on a pregnant sized woman. So how could you then determine the safety of a vehicle if a mother, a pregnant mother is driving? So those are the things that I think about, Uh, not obviously directly tied to May, but I can see that as like driving the change of more awareness of the fact that women are making, these decisions, and that we have a major impact, and we should be respected in that purchasing decision. Um, these are the things that matter, and are all tied to one another.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's like a ripple effect that you start thinking about one part of this industry, and then that leads you to recognizing, you know, the bias or recognizing all these systems that have been built not thinking of a massive group of people in mind. And this has happened in so many different areas, like the the auto industry would be one okay. of, of many, many, many.
0: Um, I can riff looking. off that. Many, please one.
1: Do.
0: So I'm old enough to remember, you might not be, when, you know, the vanity mirrors that are in the, the sun visors in cars, they were only ever on the passenger side, right, for many, many, many years, because it was assumed that women were always passengers and that only women cared about how they looked. But the point that Vivian made is such an important one. There's actually a book called Invisible Women that goes through lots of examples. Uh, voice recognition systems that only recognized men's voices. Facial recognition systems that couldn't um, recognize uh, people who were black. Um healthcare, like healthcare is so distorted, healthcare research, so distorted, you know, you will probably remember a lot of the educational programs focused on recognizing the signs of heart attacks, right, which were completely based on research about men. And we know now that women present heart attacks, often in very, very, you know, pain in their jaw, very different manifestations Uh, than men. And you can go through years of healthcare research and see how everything on breast cancer research to um, diabetes research and so on was missing that gender and diversity perspective. And as a result was not serving diverse uh, markets.
1: It's, it's, Upsetting to think about it, but there's, you know, there is movement forward. Are you both feeling positive about the direction and where we find ourselves this year? Maybe that's a segue to get both of your sentiment around, um, you know, are, are you feeling glass half full, glass half empty? Vivian, let's start with you. <laughs> I think overall
2: I'm I'm optimistic. You know, I see the things that women are doing in various different industries. Some of my female founder peers, my founder peers say I'm doing it, too. Um, And I, I do see the amount of effort that we're all trying. And in myself, you know, the auto industry is There's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of people paving the way Um, when the most powerful women in the world is a woman in autos, the CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra. So there are things like that, you know, that start at the top and at the bottom. And I, I optimistic because I hope to
0: also be a part of that change. Wendy glass half full, empty. Depends on uh, the day of the week. So I, you know, in Canada, I feel we're in good, we have good momentum, we're moving in a good direction. But if you look south of the border, you know, court challenges against um, investment funds targeting black entrepreneurs, Um, court cases challenging affirmative action, Uh, threats to roll back a lot of the, a lot of the, progress that's been made because of uh, trying to improve representation on boards. And a lot of Canadians, I feel, are too complacent, or, or look at what's happened with choice. A lot of, or, or um, uh, 2SLGBTQ identity, right? Like, people need to look at that. And Canadians, in my view, often tend to be a bit complacent and think, oh, the US is, is terrible look at all the guns look at all the racism those things don't happen not, here yeah they can happen here and if you you know if you read the tea leaves canada is really at a point where those those forces may not be as central and and dominant as we see when it's you know the president of the us who's who's fueling anti asian racism for example But make no mistake about it, that stuff is here too. And what really concerns me is I've been around long enough that I've seen the pendulum swing. And I am worried that if the anti-gender and diversity inclusion sentiments south of the border start to filter up here into the political environment, We really run the risk that we're going to lose a lot of the momentum that we've gained in recent years. And and we've seen that happen before.
1: Agreed. If you could say there was one one thing that um, you're you're hoping to see for the future, Wendy, and maybe I'll start with you, specifically as it pertains to women's entrepreneurship, understanding these these risks and these other um, things that, that may be coming our way. Do you think there's one call to action or one focus that excites you the most around what's ahead of us in 2023?
0: So this is perhaps not the most popular, but I think microfinancing, microgrants. micro-grants. I have 1,700 Black women who applied for eight $10,000 awards. 1,700 Black women. It certainly tells you that there is a, an unmet appetite um, for even small amounts of funding, and so mm-hmm. that's yeah, I'm very concerned about the high end. I'm very concerned about um, VCs and angels and so on. But to me, the more flowers we plant, <laughs> right broadly we spread we spread the opportunities widely. You create more more chances that a Vivian a Vivian Liu will uh, will appear. So so I really want to. And Pick up on that momentum and find ways to invest in women at the beginning of their journeys.
1: I love that. And Vivian, what about you? What's your kind of call to action or thing you're most excited about leaving this conversation for other women entrepreneurs?
2: I think, from my perspective as like an early stage um, entrepreneur, it is very much that if you have the yearning to do something more. You know you're five ten years 15 20 years into your career and it's not doing it for you and you feel like you could use some change i urge you to really think about what excites you and you know test the waters it is very scary it is uh it is yeah very frightening from a personal mental emotional monetary perspective um but i would not I would not do anything else other than what I'm currently doing. It may be lots of ups and downs. I may have a lot of imposter syndrome. There are days where I feel like I have made a mistake, um, but it is the it's the next day where I pick up myself, and through whether it's my own doing or through the help of others and you know my network, it is very much worth it. And uh, regardless of what happens. Uh, I'm still very grateful for the opportunity and the network and the connections that I've made.
1: Well, thank you so much, Vivian and Wendy. This has been an amazing episode. Um, And thank you to Weck and Wendy, your entire team. It's been amazing partnering with uh, Weck and Startup Canada and bringing you across
0: the country with us for a Startup Canada tour. Thank you, that was fabulous. And lovely meeting you, Vivian.
2: You too, thank you, Wendy, for everything you do. That was very eye-opening.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.